Well, hello and welcome to another episode of uh, GU Cast. This is Declan Murphy, urologist at Peter Mac in Melbourne, uh, joined as ever by my co-host Renu Epen, urologist here at Peter Mac as well. Hello, Renu. Hello, Declan. I'm looking forward to this one. It's going to shine a bit of light onto these bleak winter days that we're having. Yes. So it's still here, August in Melbourne. So that's winter, of course, in Melbourne. Although it's not winter like I remember growing up in the west of Ireland, I must say. But still, it's dark, and we're all feeling a bit sorry for ourselves Curfew because we're in. curfew, lockdown, lockdown COVID, etc., etc. So to bring a bit of a, a ray of light into <laughs> yes. our own lives as well as into the, the podcast today, because the podcast, I mean, we try and make it fun, but we do yeah. end up talking about serious stuff sometimes. But and we will talk a little serious today, but we want to bring um, a, a whole ray of light into the podcast by. Welcoming one of my favourite old uh, friends in urology uh, from the University of Pittsburgh, uh, Dr. Ben Davies, who's joining us on Zoom. Ben, hello. Hello, Ben. Hi, how are you guys doing? Well, I feel a lot of pressure. I have to be funny and exciting all at once. <laughs> Just be Ben. That's all we expect from you, uh, my friend. Well, thank you okay. for joining us uh, from Pittsburgh. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely summer's evening, I presume, uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, gorgeous. As gorgeous. Gorgeous evening. Fantastic. And very good of you to give us a, a few minutes of your time. Um, and thank Our you listeners for... uh, can't, can't see you, Ben, but we're very envious of that glass of Pinot Noir you've got there, relaxed in your T-shirt. There is a glass of I feel Pinot lovely. I just got off the Peloton. I've uh, had dinner and now having my first glass of wine. It's a oh. beautiful evening. Very nice. <laughs> so uh, that is great segue into the introduction to Ben Davies today. So I will tell you a little bit about Ben for those of you who don't know. He's a urologist, of course, specializing in, in GU cancer. Um, he's a professor of urology at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and he's chief of the urology section at the Shadyside Hillman Cancer Center in Pittsburgh. Also director of the GU oncology uh, program there. Um, so he's obviously a, a, a very significant player in GU oncology urology uh, in the U.S. Um, but I know Ben, I suppose, best going back the years from uh, his Twitter profile, as many listeners probably do as well, uh, at Davies BJ. Um, and Ben was one of the very, very first people I can truly tell you uh, on in urology, uh, well, in all sorts of areas uh, on Twitter. And I noticed from your profile, Ben, you actually signed up back in way back in 2008. Wow. Um, yeah, when these <laughs> platforms were kind of coming and going and Ben got going on it. Yeah. Um, he's got seven and a half thousand followers. I'm bored mind. <laughs> bored mind. Yeah, what else were you fiddling with back then maybe your your twitter stories will tell us that because you, you do a lot more than urology that's for sure um but i was staggered today ben i know you tweet a lot and uh, and and i've been a keen user of twitter for very many years again but only only since really 2012 or 13 you have tweeted more than 51,000 times over the past uh, 12 years oh my goodness yeah which if you do the math renew is like 10 or 11 times a day every day for the past 12 wow. years um, i don't think i've got that many tweets ever <laughs> <laughs> ten, ten I'm horrified tweets. by those numbers, and it's really <laughs> devastating. I know. Data it's really a sign of a. It's so disappointing when someone produces your data for you, isn't it? I've never had that complication. What do you mean? Oh, no, I actually, I have tweeted 10 or 11 times a day, wow. every day for 12 years now. So, so. But of course, I could argue with those statistics pretty effectively because, you know, they're compressed here and, you know, it depends what's going on. Oh, yes. I hear but yes, know. too many times, I would, I, would, I would argue. Them's the facts, as they say. So, yeah. So, a prolific uh, Twitter uh, Twitterer. But, of course, we know, I think, was it Lady Gaga who said that uh, social media is the toilet of the internet so just because you tweet a lot or have a lot of followers like i do as well doesn't mean that's a good thing or adds value but look ben the title of our podcast today was we titled it important stuff uh, in all capitals uh, with uh, ben davies and and knowing you as i do going back uh, for these last six or seven years since we first met in person the 
there's lots of stuff we can we can talk about, and and indeed you and I have debated at the AUA uh, in the in the in the plenary session stuff like um, uh, focal therapy and MRI and transrectal biopsy and transperineal biopsy uh, and all that sort of stuff. But Renew, there's a pile of other stuff that we put on our short list of things. And by the way, we made up the agenda for today's podcast based on looking at Ben's Twitter feed basically for the last <laughs> month or so. Um, so do you want to have a pick at some of these Gosh, things? Or this is important stuff we want to talk to Ben Davies where about. Where do we start? But you know, I think one of the great things about you tweeting, Ben, is we really do get a great glimpse into your life. And you dip your feet into a lot of different things here. And and maybe I'll start with this one. And I, and I saw this tweet and I thought it was great and a very relevant question. Why is it that grape tomatoes don't all ripen at the same rate on a vine? Well, you know, it's funny because when I put that tweet out, it was more out of exasperation. I wanted a few tomatoes for dinner salad and and it was like mostly green and a few reds, and it made no sense to me. Uh, so they, to but they were your to, own tomatoes. To they were in your garden. Yeah, he's growing these things. Yeah, I, have, I actually have a really big veggie garden. I'm slightly obsessed with it. I grow from seed. I have many, many, many plants. But I don't have an answer. There is, I'm sure, a hort- uh, some kind of agricultural answer, but I don't, I don't know it. It's, but it annoys me. Yeah, I mean, these are these are life's great questions, aren't they, Declan? Yeah, and in fact, when you scroll back, he's got lots and lots of pictures of these uh, tomatoes over the past uh, six months or so since you, you took it up. And the other one, you, other food item we see a lot of is challah bread, which you obviously take great pride yeah. in, in baking this yourself and celebrating occasions. And uh, why do why do yeah. you feel you I should have... share this with me, for example? And I always look at this thing and that looks delicious. Yeah. Well. I... It's a um, the Hebrew word is challah. It's a rule that you do on prayers generally on a Friday night. And I like to do, I pretty much do it when we have one. Um, and I think you know, I usually try and say some representative sentence for the week, uh, whether it's political or whether it's emotional or whether it's something I'm feeling at the moment. I try and make it a real tweet rather than one of my pedantic or... Uh, um, ephemeral tweet. So uh, I try and make it meaningful. And I have to say, it's not me baking it. Although I'm happy to take the credit of my beautiful surgeon wife, um, who, um, who who makes the bread. I just take credit for it like a good husband. Oh, look at that. It's already been worked in the podcast to find that out. Yeah. Oh. Wow. It's a, it's a work of art. She's quite talented. I know. And he often tweets. Yeah. Your, your wife's name, I've forgotten again, but you often tag her in tweets. Sorry, Sarah. Sarah yeah. and um, ah, Siri, yeah. gosh, like someone just burst a bubble yeah. for me. I thought you did that yourself, I, I, but there you go. Bloody hell, no! I can't bake for anything. And you know, Ben, there's usually a bottle of wine sitting next to the loaf of bread. Um, yes. So we know that you love your wine, and uh, we've promised yes. you an Australian Pinot. Yes, we are going to do that. And look, that's just a bit of a lighthearted. No, I, you know, I used to own a wine company. It's actually a long. I'm not going to go to the long story, but I started a wine company as a fellow when I was at UCSF. And it's actually a, a relatively successful wine company, which I sold a few years ago. And wow. it really just was on Italian wine. Um, so my, if I have an expertise, it's Italian um, Piedmont uh, wines, which I could talk to your listeners about for hours and hours. I'm sure they'd be just love to hear about it. And Ben, um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we would love to hear about it. <laughs> that, that is fascinating. <laughs> and what a great place to start a, start a company. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, we know that you love traveling through Europe and, and we, you know, we're all shut mm-hmm. down in this pandemic. Europe's been closed. What, what do you, do you miss it? Oh. What do you miss most about it? Oh, it's so depressing. I can't even tell you how depressed I am about it. Yeah, I mean, I think every summer I spend two weeks somewhere in Europe, Switzerland, France, or Italy, I know that sounds very one percent, especially from an America which is really suffering with uh, with many um, financial problems around me, unemployment at 50 million people in America right now. So there's a lot of suffering. So I feel sort of out of the box saying I miss going to Europe. It seems uncomfortable, but that's the truth. I do feel I do miss it. I, I miss being in the streets of Paris. I miss being in the streets of Barcelona. I'm sure. You guys do too, because I know you guys travel the world as well. And not, not being global is really psychologically very debilitating for me because part of my life is traveling the world. That's what makes me happy beyond my family and, and patient care. Uh, so, yeah, it's depressing. So it's yeah. totally depressing. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? And, and I suppose occasions like this, being able to catch up with friends uh, through virtual education or, or, or webinars and so on, um, it's helpful that we can do things like that. But I think, yeah, we all are yearning the, the, the interactions we get with people yeah. at meetings and seeing family, of course, as well, uh, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but let's talk to you about meetings, because it is quite interesting, isn't it? The evolving landscape uh, we're in. Um, I just uh, We had uh, Tim O'Brien, the president of BAUS, on the podcast earlier in the week, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I hadn't realized until he came on that the BAUS uh, physical meeting, which was supposed to be in June, uh, the BAUS summer meeting, postponed till November, uh, has now been uh, dumped in favour of a virtual meeting. Um, ASCO GU has already, next year has been uh, transformed to a virtual meeting. The USANS meeting, our annual meeting in March, has now gone virtual as well. Uh, and I think what the USANS president told us on the podcast was, you know, six or eight months out, you're having to put down the large deposit on the big conference centre and commit, and they just people just can't commit uh, to these events. So that that's the window we're in now, Ben, I think, for the larger meetings, looking at uh, mid-next mid year, those meetings that require deposits now, and you know your 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 company's insurance are not going to cover pandemic cancellations. I think for next year. So, what do you think? What's gonna What's gonna happen to to physical meetings next year? Will there be any uh, any big meetings? I'm very pessimistic about it. I have to tell you, even if we get a vaccine, I actually think there's going to be. This is a whole other topic of my life: studying COVID um, and reacting to it in the hospital from an administrative level, but I'm, I'm, I'm relatively sanguine that we're going to get a, get one or two vaccines relatively in quick order. I'm less excited about those being distributed appropriately and really getting herd immunity at a level which apparently we require. So I don't, you know, I don't think there are going to be many meetings next year. If, if they are, they'll be small, they'll be parallel tracks where you can do it both ways, both formally and online. I think the future of meetings, if you, just really want to put your, lay my Nostradamus um, predictions. I think the future is bleak. I don't think that we're going to be seeing these massive meetings anymore. And if I'm wrong, then you can take this little snippet and throw it back to me. I've been wrong before, MRIs perhaps. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's going to be, and I think we're going to be wearing masks too. I mean, even if COVID goes away, you're going to really not wear a mask anymore in crowds. I don't know. I think that's with us too. I think Social distancing, to some extent, is going to hang around. There's um, probably there's one area where you. Hang around. I was just going to say, Ben. There's probably one area where you want to be wrong. I mean, it sounds pretty bleak, yeah. doesn't it? 
Yeah, it's bleak, but I but I think it's with us. I think it's even if we yeah. get look, even in America, let's talk about America. I can't tell you about Australia, although we have similar right and left problems in both countries. In America, there's a significant portion of people who will not take the vaccine. Let's say J and J or Moderna or one of these companies really a Merck has a breakthrough, which the way they might. There's 50 percent in some in some polls in America won't take the vaccine. Uh, we can elaborate on why that would be, but if that's true, how do we get herd immunity? If we don't have herd immunity, how do you go to a meeting in good faith? Uh, if you have bad asthma, if you take steroids, if you can't take the vaccine, so it's a problem. Yeah, yeah it is a problem. And I think the comment about masks and behaviors and social distancing is interesting for me traveling a lot in in the Asia region as a, as I've done. Uh, because post SARS, you know, in Hong Kong, it is normal to, mm-hmm. for people to be wearing masks uh, front end in, in shops and hotels, and it's just normal. And I think you're right about that. I, I didn't really understand this before, how that could become a normal years and years after they've been through SARS. Uh, but I think it will be normal. And almost now, you know, because you, it's compulsory in, in Melbourne, walking around the streets yeah. uh, now to have it. And, and if you don't have your mask, you suddenly grab and go for it, like the way you've lost your keys or your phone, uh, you know, where's mm-hmm. your mask? And it will be because uh, it'll stay around for a while. But there you go. We'll, we'll adjust to things like that provided other elements of healthcare and society, I suppose, can get back to normal. Yeah, I mean, everyone talks about the new normal, right? And the, these are the sort of adjustments we're, we're going to have to make well into the future, I think. Ben, let's, get, let's go off COVID for a second, go back to a couple of our favorite. Let's get a couple of quick comments on some of our favorite things we love arguing about. Um, so transrectal biopsy versus transperineal prostate biopsy. Um, uh, come on. Surely, surely um, so, you've moved that uh, one into that. I was wrong on that some, one. I'll give you some. I'll give you some breaking news. Okay. We, <laughs> so you can publish it. We, uh, I've just purchased the first University of Pittsburgh transperineal uh, software and suite that will be up and running in a few months. Stone, I did he say that? I think he did. Yeah. Stop the press! Can you repeat that? And I, you know what? And, I, and let me just let me just put my uh, my credentials out there. I, I think the move really. Uh, I know you're excited. I think really what, what drove it in the end was less about diagnosis and, and and things, but it really was we had bad infections rates really just getting worse and worse, and our stewardship of antibiotics was getting worse and worse. And I think in the end that for me, is what turned us, turned the corner. Uh, it only takes one or two bad outcomes in the year uh, for really think about how you can prevent it. And you can easily justify it from a, a financial point of view. If you prevent, you know, 1% hospitalization or even, you know, septic rate or whatever percentage you want to play with. So just, I just want to remind your pleasant listeners that when this topic was thrust upon me, I was totally ambivalent to the situation. I wasn't a, um, you know, uh, I didn't have stock in transrectal um, um, appliances. I was just asked to take one side. And it actually, if you look at my, my, the things I've written about in urology, we recently wrote an article very pro-transperineal. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to, to do it, um, and uh, yeah, we're doing it. Yeah, look, it's really good. And, and it's not like that, uh, that I would, I, I never had a really strong view that it was totally evil to be doing transrectal, just because I've, I've really only been doing transperineal since midway through my 
uh, urology training in London. But it's interesting that I've noticed in the past five years a, a stronger argument, particularly on that topic of antibiotic stewardship, particularly here in Asia-Pacific region where we have very high levels of uh, Cipro-type resistance um, due to mm-hmm. various healthcare conditions in Southeast Asia. Um, and it's become a really big issue then, the whole thing of, well, you know, we really have to protect these antibiotics and so on. And maybe even the pandemic crystallizes these things even more, the presumption we'll have strong yes. anti-infectives uh, to go with. So I think probably alone on that, it just as a, a very high volume procedure like prostate biopsy um, with predictable risks by putting the needle through the rectum that can be uh, controlled with, with antibiotics, we need to probably really think differently, come at it differently and say, well, what if we didn't have antibiotics or what if they weren't yeah. effective at reducing the risks of sepsis? So very good well you, and uh, and it's very interesting to hear that and i'll tell you from australia we're now in in the registries here um, 50% or just over 50% in melbourne of all prostate biopsies are done transperineal which i think must be the highest in the world uh, because in the uk registry where they're they're very keen on transperineal biopsy uh, the National Prostate Cancer uh, Registry shows only 12% of biopsies are done transperineal. Uh, so Australia has a lot of experience in it. And in the in the most recent um, government review of the reimbursement of prostate biopsy and other procedures, very interestingly, there was a proposal that um, uh, reimbursement for transrectal biopsy be stopped uh, in favour of increasing the reimbursement to cover costs and, in other words, enable everybody to do transperineal biopsy. And that was driven by the consumers, Ben. It was driven by the patients who sit on these various panels along with urologists and health economists and infectious diseases people and so on. But it was the, the voice of the consumers saying, hey, you know, we, we, we're, we're concerned enough about this that we, we think government should ma- just make it take out any uncertainty about infection risk and so on and antibiotic concerns and, and there you go but um and a classic ben davies he looks at stuff and he thinks <laughs> about it and if he yeah. thinks things have changed he'll change his mind yeah that's yeah that's, i'm i'm happy I, one thing i preach to residents and fellows is you can't be so dogmatic about everything you do um you know you're not right all the time even if you're an old you know guy like me um i'm not that, that old but i feel old you know thousands of prostatectomies, I'll still change something if somebody thinks something's better, you know, that's fine. Totally right. And uh, I, I, I did a, a lecture in, in Oxford last year. They invited me to do a grand rounds on um, avoiding obsolescence as a cancer surgeon. So, Ben, you and I are the same generation as cancer surgeons. So a lot of these messages apply. And it made me reflect on it a lot. Uh, yeah. Freddie Hamdy invited me to do this talk. Um, and so I did. And um, uh, approaching the age of 50 and uh, being in practice for 15 or so years. And looking yeah. back to the stuff you and I trained to do, the operations we trained to do in general surgery and breast cancer and so on, that are obsolete now you know there's no way you would dream of doing those operations to women with a small breast lump uh, nowadays um and then you have to say that to, to the that generation that if you don't embrace lifelong learning or if you become so focused on i want to be a robotic prostatectomist or cystectomist you're going to be obsolete and you have to have a yeah. lifelong learning approach or don't focus on a procedure focus as, as, as we tend to teach our uh, fellows on a disease area and learn all about that disease area and the evolution of it and how it's changing and make sure you know the best way to manage your patients but but don't just do a procedure you're you're you're, you're almost yeah. guaranteeing you're going and there to used to be obsolete. fellowships in eswall you know extra you know that was a fellowship how to do eswall yeah in as much as I love endourologists, I think that's kind of weird too. Like you're doing a fellowship at endourology. How about to do a fellowship in stone disease and management of stone disease? I don't like fellowships just designed on one technique. 
to me, it's bizarre. But I haven't. I like that. Le- I like to listen to the lecture you gave in in Oxford. But I, I recently converted all of my partial nephrectomies, basically all to robotic. And I have to say, professionally, that's one of the hardest things I've ever done because it really took a really great, beautiful open surgery, which I love doing, to an incredibly stressful, eye squeezing, butt squeezing, horrifying surgery, where I just didn't want anybody touching anything, and I'd yell and. I just couldn't get it. I just had so much stress. This is a few years ago. But over the years, now I feel totally comfortable doing almost all cases uh, par- with a partial, so uh, robotically. But it, you have to, and that's is 12, 13 years into being an attending. But you have to be able to do it. If you think it's better, you got to do it, or else you're doing a disservice to your patients. Totally right. You have to choose well and you have to be prepared to change your mind. And that's what the theme of lifelong learning is, I suppose. Um, And as a fellowship director, I think you and I, we should be sitting around the same table with a bottle of Pinot talking about these things. I'm sure I would learn a lot, Ben, from sharing But I I think it's it's equally important, that attitude of always looking for ways to improve for your patients. Um, And and I think that's that's a great... That's a great way to look 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 at practice. Now, Renu, there was another thing that caught our eye recently. Um, the <laughs> Journal of Urology, uh, uh, great uh, the great Bible yes. of um, uh, the AUA, uh, recently put out on Twitter a, a call for interest in um, the next editor. And of course, editor That's, of the J Oral is one yeah. of those huge jobs in urology, isn't it? And yeah. lots of uh, famous people have filled those boots. Yeah. So they, they put out a call on Twitter, um, <laughs> Renew. So what and, caught your uh, eye yeah, about this? And, and Ben's doing some headhunting uh, for this. And, and you had some great suggestions, Ben. Yeah, he's he's already he's gone into the executive recruitment Absolutely. phase on Twitter, as you might expect, Ben Davies. And so I'll read out what it says. The AUA is now accepting applications for the next editor of the Journal of Urology. Learn more here. Bang. And Ben Davies is straight back in with a highly cited tweet, <laughs> a highly liked tweet saying, just make it either Stacey Loeb or Angie Smith. Oh. Uh, so what do you think of that, Renew? Fantastic. Both amazing women. Uh, and you'll save all this money on executive headhunting and, uh, and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, I mean, to be honest, um, I, I didn't just I didn't do it because they were women exclusively. They honestly came to mind as young, well-established, well-granted, well-written professors who, yes, they're women. And to me, it's like, look, what are we looking for? We're looking for people who know how to do social media, know about real science and real health services research, who are very personable, uh, highly, highly intelligent. Um, that's what we want. I mean, how much do you have to look for? You don't need to look that far. There's probably only five to 10 people who meet that criteria. And, uh, and Stacy and Angie would be so perfect at that job. Um, to me, it's easy. So I, th- I think maybe, I don't know how the avenues of power decide, you know, I'm not in the room where it happens, as they say in Hamilton, you know, the Hamilton, that may not be an Australian thing, but there's a song that says, I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. You guys don't listen to Hamilton. This is from the Broadway, the, show. The Broadway show Hamilton, yeah. Oh, my God. Good Lord, have mercy. I, I, That's actually, probably the Do you know, Ben, it was, it was actually just, it, had, it was playing in San Francisco as I left after my fellowship. But uh, it is I'm on just Stan. I'm horrified you didn't get that cultural reference. I'm horrified. Anyway, to I'm edit. not in the room where it happens. We're going to have to edit this podcast. He's, doing He's all some judgy on us now, isn't he? You're down there in the colonies, <laughs> uh, culturalist with terrible pino and blah blah blah. But sorry, you were saying yes. You're not in the room. I'm not even in. Uh, you know, on this. It's, it's, I made a cultural reference to a song in the most popular Broadway show in the past decade. But never mind. You didn't get it. 
Speed over. Let's start from after you finish that <laughs> reference. Yeah, look, it's really good, but it's an exciting <laughs> thing, isn't it, the uh, G-year-old thing? And speaking yeah. to Freddie Hamdi, uh, we did a, a GU podcast with uh, Freddie Hamdi a few days ago as well, new editor-in-chief of the BJUI. Oh, and guess what, actually? Uh, we're we're going to talk to um, another good mate of yours, Mike Leverage, uh, who's taken over as the yeah. editor of the CUA Journal in Canada in a couple of weeks' time. But that'll be another disruptive yeah. editorship from a very talented person. Yeah. Um, but Mike it was really, is a great guy. Yeah, great guy. And it was really good talking to yeah. Freddie Hamdi this morning, who, of course, course is this impeccable pedigree as a, an academic urologist in the UK having led so many big things including Protect uh, of course but he's got a great vision yeah. I think for the uh-huh. journal for the BJUI and I, I think there have been a lot of changes in some of the big journals but I would argue t- you know I, I would argue that some journals have changed more quickly uh, uh, than others. Uh, BJUI and European Urology would be ones I would say in the past ten years really oh. gra- grabbed early, put young people in, uh, went went you know with a digital age much quicker. And I uh, and with all yeah. due respect to the talented people and the great work in the J all, I think uh, you probably need a bit. No, of it's a nightmare. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I mean to be perfectly frank, and obviously I'm going to speak from the heart. Why not? I mean, J Urology has so much work to be done to bring it to where it needs to be, um, it's a shame because the data is there. It's just it's presented in such an old school way without any real feel for where we are in a digital world that uh, it needs young, not necessarily necessarily age young, but somebody who's um, savvy in the digital media and savvy academically and bring it to be able to speak normal, to speak, speak, normally to people um i think i think really european urology and pju have really done a really 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 good job really amazing job uh, i mean it's it was great speaking with freddie hamdi I and mean, he made it just seem so approachable the journal you know he called it a home he called it a vehicle it was it it, it really gave this feeling of, of a journal that that is easily approachable yeah, and he spoke about his own personal early experience of publishing there. It was really good, and he yeah. brings great perspective. And I think, in fact, Jay Smith, having done a great job in recent years on the Jay Roll, uh, you know, I think is almost bridging into that because he has brought in some changes and some uh, younger people in there to help uh, with that transition that needs to happen. But I think it probably needs to be yeah. tur- turbocharged. And it's more of an investment, uh, guys, that I think than yeah. anything else. That yeah. it's, I know Dr. Smith, Jay Smith, well, I sit on a board with him. Um, inter- on IVU, International Volunteers for Urology. So I, I get to interact with them quite a bit. But you have to invest in the structure, right? It's not just the people. You have to put money um, into it. And they hopefully they'll do that when uh, Dr. Loeb takes over. <laughs> you heard it here first. Now, Ben, um, uh, without taking up too much of your time, there's a couple of last quick things we wanted to do. Um, I've always admired every time I meet you in person, you are always, always impeccably turned out with a beautiful suit and tie, all nicely buttoned up. Um, and I love wearing a suit. I've always loved wearing a suit in consulting with patients or certainly at conferences. But, you know, this last few months, I think the world over knows that we're not wearing suits as much. Um, a lot of things are not the way they used to be. Um, and I tweeted out a picture of, um, of my new scrubs last week that I, I was slovenly wearing in the consulting suite uh, seeing patients and I I nervously tagged you uh, knowing before you called me out to say look you've dropped your standards Murphy uh, to say oh look here I am wearing scrubs uh, yeah I mean in the look office. I'm an Englishman I was born in Newcastle my dad uh, wears a tie every day of his life um, I wear a tie every day of my life and the, the pandemic hasn't changed that I still wear a tie to work uh, I change and put my scrubs on take my scrubs off when I go to clinic and put a tie on. 
I, I, that's the way I am. I realize that the, the society isn't necessarily there, but I haven't changed a thing. And there was some argument, I think it was from Dr. Davis, John, who I'm friendly with, so I'm happy to have the argument with him. But there's no real data suggesting the virus transmits worse if I wear my suit and tie. Um, I mean, I think that's all ridiculous. And there's also no data that I can't get home, change my change in the basement, put my regular clothes on, that I'm transmitting anything to my parents. I think really this slovenly look is just really completely homemade ridiculousness. Keep your bloody tie on. Put your nice blouse on. There's no reason to look slovenly. He's there right, you, you know. He bloody is right. Heard it from the <laughs> Even though people wade in and say, yeah, yeah, no, we won't do it. What's the point? And he's right, though. I like seeing yeah. somebody in a smart suit. I think it, it makes me feel confident. I think we should ask the patients these things, Ben, but I think it is a good thing. So I'm, there you go. It, like it, Ben Davies does, <laughs> he changes his mind on stuff and I'm going to I'm gonna go along. I'm going to change his mind on stuff. I'm going to tweet out a picture of me wearing a shirt and tie. I'd like uh, to see it. Next week. <laughs> what's look- your, ben, what's your opinion on someone doing telehealth in their uh, pajamas? <laughs> That's horrifying. <laughs> um, horrifying. It's horrifying. It I is, mean, telehealth is supposed to be... We're supposed to be, you know, the same thing as if you're doing it live. And if you're talking about somebody's cancer and you got your pajamas on, I mean. <laughs> no, <oof>. I, <laughs> I was just kidding. I, I knew that would draw a reaction from oh. me. <laughs> oh, good. We haven't dropped. We're not saying <laughs> no, we do we that. Have, no, we don't do that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, um, Ben, um, it's been lovely to chat with you. And uh, as, as we say to guests that we welcome into Zoom on our little studio here at Peter Mac, we lo- it, lo- it does feel like we're sitting around the table, to get the same table together, although we're not. We're like 15,000 kilometres away or something more, probably. 25, 20,000 kilometres away, maybe. Yeah. Um, and I do look forward to the, the days when we will catch up again at physical meetings, um, because I certainly miss physical meetings. I miss a lot of the stuff that happens and the, the catching up with people and those introductions you get that aren't just quite the same on Zoom or on Twitter or whatever. So I, I yearn for the day they'll come back again. But uh, in the meantime, it's been uh, absolutely delightful having you on GU Cast, and uh, I wish you all the very best uh, from all of us here in Melbourne. And we hope we will catch up with you sometime soon, Renu. What do you think? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ben. It was it was such a pleasure chatting with you. Pleasure being with you guys. Thanks for the invitation. Hope you guys stay safe. Thank you. And that's all we have time for uh, on GU Cast today. It's been lovely to have Ben Davies here today, and we'll be back very soon again. Uh, take care. <laughs>